This is the IBJ Podcast for the week of April 17th, 2023, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Our guest this week is Lisa Pace, the Vice President of External Affairs for Indianapolis-based Bosma Enterprises. You probably recognize Bosma as a not-for-profit that helps Indiana residents who are blind or visually impaired. It's a multifaceted organization, and its business model includes providing products and services for the public and private sectors. This, in turn, provides jobs for people with vision loss who otherwise would face a 70% unemployment rate. In fact, more than half of Bosma's employees are blind or visually impaired, including Lisa Pace. She was climbing the ladder in the banking industry in the early 1990s when she learned that she would eventually lose her sight to a disease called retinitis pigmentosa. Married and the mother of a young son, she slowly retreated into a dark and isolated life as she lost most of her sight, stopped working, and became a stay-at-home mom. As she says, I didn't know how to be someone who was blind. In our podcast, she tells the story of how her family inspired her to get her to college degree and start volunteering. That led to a full-time job at Bosma and then a raft of promotions that brought her to her current position as a company executive. You could see her as a kind of proof of concept for Bosma's mission of helping clients learn the skills required for excelling in almost any business environment. But as she acknowledges, employers also need to see beyond sight impediments and trust the results from past work history. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Lisa Pace, Vice President of External Affairs for Bosma Enterprises. Thank you for having me at the Bosma headquarters today. It's great to have you here, Mason. Welcome. So I wanted initially wanted to do a little experiment. I want to know what you have done so far at work today that most people would assume would require you to be able to see. Now, I'm guessing though, just based on our conversation a couple minutes ago, you do not have total vision loss. And I would assume maybe a lot of people who have impaired vision don't have total vision loss, but it is enough to keep them um, in some situations from doing a particular job. So explain to me, uh, if we go back to the original question, like what have you been doing today and, and and what is kind of the state of your vision now? Sure. So I have a disease called retinitis pigmentosa, and I was diagnosed in my early 20s pretty unceremoniously. Just thought I was going for a routine eye exam. But this particular disease causes you to first go night blind, so you start to have trouble seeing at night. And then it progresses and slowly takes your peripheral vision. So I have no peripheral vision really left to lose. I have central vision. And I see about 10 degrees in each of my eyes. So very, very limited central vision. For me, the good news is that my central vision is relatively healthy. So for a person my age, the little vision that I have is is good vision. So if you come into work and you need to check your email, is that something that you can do with your currently available site? Absolutely. So I am able to utilize uh, the enlarge 
management feature on my computer to be able to read my email and navigate just general tasks on a computer. So I'm able to do that uh, relatively easily uh, anymore. The assistive technology just generally built into computers and, and phones are accessibility features that are very, very helpful to somebody who's blind. And so I'm able to function very, very independently. You mentioned that maybe the, the place where you have the most trouble is mobility. How does that manifest? I do. So I have received training uh, to learn how to use a white cane. And so with my white cane, I'm ab absolutely able to navigate spaces. But I would say that my biggest challenge is not really using my computer because I do have those as assistive technology features. But where I probably the most challenged is in unfamiliar spaces, because if you have no peripheral vision, you can't see what's what's what you're coming up against. And so that white cane helps so much in being able to detect obstacles and keep me safe. What are some of the assistive uh, features that you might have on a, on a normal computer or a normal iPhone? Sure. So uh, for me, I use Siri quite often, which is an audio feature. So oftentimes I just simply lose my phone. I forget where I put it on my desk. And so I'll say, hey, Siri, where are you? And Siri <laughs> tells me where, where he is. And uh, so that's a feature that I use quite often and probably people that are on the same row of offices with me are like, why is Lisa yelling at Siri again? <laughs> but, that, but that's a feature that I use quite often. Um, you know, voice commands with, with the iPhone are extremely helpful. Enlargement features using contrast is, is really great for me. I know my colleagues here in the office who are blind, somebody who's totally blind might choose to use assistive technology like JAWS, which is a screen reader, will actually read the text to you. So that's another way that people sort of navigate vision loss uh, and using a computer. So it was probably in the, was it the mid 90s or early 90s when you began to have vision problems? It was. I was, had been married for about three years. I was progressing um, through my career in bank management was managing a small credit union, and I had an 18-month-old son. And I started to notice as I would drive to work that I would have a little bit of trouble um, seeing. And then I would almost sometimes come upon obstacles, and it would almost startle me because I didn't see them coming. And so I thought, you know, I need to go, and I need to get that checked out and probably get some glasses. And so I went to see uh, an eye care professional. He examined me, left the room, and he came back in and said to me, do you know that you have a retinal disease? And I said, no idea. But I said, I'm obviously here because I need glasses. And he looked at me and he said, you don't know that you have a retinal disease? And I said, absolutely not. And he said, well, you have a disease called retinitis pigmentosa and you're going to go blind over your lifetime, and I suggest that you get ready for it. That's a broad statement, I'm over your lifetime. I mean, <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, how do you handle this? I mean, that's almost no information. It was no information, and 
it's you go into an eye appointment thinking you're going to get glasses and you leave the eye appointment learning that over your lifetime you're going to go blind. So it was it was very, very obviously jarring news. And uh, I, I, it was sunny when I went into that office, and I distinctly remember when I left that appointment that the world seemed dark. And it was a time before there were cell phones, and so I wasn't able to just, you know, call somebody for, you know, at that time I had not experienced so much vision loss that I was still driving. And I, I drove home, and the only thing that I could really fathom was that I didn't want to go blind, first of all, who who would, but then secondly, I didn't want to be a burden on my family, you know, my husband and my son. And so it left a lot of questions about what life would look like post-vision loss. And I was at a time in my life where everybody's sort of looking forward to what's their next step in their career, what's their next step in their family. And my future was going blind. And so it was a it was a lot. Did you continue to see that doctor or did he suggest, you know, you need to get in touch with so-and-so who's an eye specialist just to continue to monitor the situation? Because, because sitting at home waiting to go blind doesn't sound like a good solution. It really was. Uh, there wasn't any resources presented at, at, at that diagnosis. So... Like all good mothers, I I called my mother who who lived in the city, and I and her and I were very close. And I certainly explained to her what I had been told. And this was again before internet, and so we all quickly dove into researching what this diagnosis meant and what next steps would be, and whether there was some treatment for it. And we quickly found that there wasn't. I ended up seeing a specialist in Chicago, and he did a lot of testing and, and confirmed the diagnosis and um, what the outcome was likely going to be. But I love it. You know, I'm a mom, um, and I think moms will appreciate this. My mom, on her way to come see and console me and, and just talk through what next steps might be, brought me some chicken noodle soup <laughs> and some Ray Charles sunglasses. So... <laughs> She was she was ready with uh, she was ready to comfort her daughter. That's great. So over what period of time was there major sight loss? There was major sight loss. It took probably 10 to 12 years, but there did come a point where I was no longer able to drive. Um, I took public transportation um, for a period of time, but then it really became very, very difficult to do my job effectively. And I didn't know where to turn because at the time that I received this diagnosis, I didn't really need services. But at the time that I needed services, I was disconnected from how that would work. And so I decided to just go ahead and become a stay-at-home mom. I gave up my career and I accessed government benefits because I didn't think I could work anymore. I didn't know a place like Bosma existed. Mm -hmm. About what time was, was that when you stopped working? Early 2000s. And uh, emotionally, I mean, what is that like to, I mean, for your world to kind of shrink back in on you and, and then suddenly just be about being at home? I have always been wired to work. I 
went out and uh, sought my first job when I was 14 and washing dishes at a restaurant. And I always really loved to do the best job that I could do. But I also loved having a little spending cash. And, and so when I didn't know I could work any longer, it was pretty devastating. And I quickly became a shell of the person that I was. And not only did that impact uh, not having a career anymore, it really impacted my interaction with former colleagues and even responsibility for my son and and caring for him. My, my husband ended up being the primary caregiver because I just didn't know how to be someone who was blind. I didn't know I had never met anybody who was blind. And so I became really that shell of a person. And, and so it was a dark time. Do you think that something that that could have happened if that had, say, maybe 30 years later, like today, is there someone who has gotten the same diagnosis and similarly didn't get any information about, you know, where to go, who to talk to? I mean, is that something that you think about now as a leader of this organization? How do we prevent uh, the current leases from falling into that situation? Absolutely. I think we have to step back to my story with Bosma to get to that place in the story. I, after eight years of staying at home, there were things that happened with my family and I, it really caused me to want to re-enter the workforce. And I didn't like who I had become. And I wanted to be an example for my son. He was getting ready to graduate from high school now. And he had this mom that was just kind of falling apart. I was not diagnosed until my early 20s. So he's coming upon that age. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror saying, if he gets this diagnosis, is this who you want him to look to as his example? And it was really the kick I needed to rediscover myself as someone who is blind. And so as a kid, my parents always uh, encouraged my brother and I to engage in service because it takes the focus off of you and puts it on someone else. I also thought that beyond that, it was a good opportunity for me to just see if I had anything to offer the world. I mean, that's where I was in my head and my heart is, do I even have anything? And so I found Bosma. It was very close to my house, so transportation wasn't an issue. And I started coming here and I came on a tour and I was introduced to this world of people who were working in every position from in a manufacturing position all the way to leadership. And not only were they working in from unskilled labor to, to, to very specific uh, professional positions, they had families and they were living their lives. And I thought, I can do this. And so it was a place where I found opportunity. And so, yes, your, the, I think your original question was, now would Lisa sort of follow the same path? And absolutely not because of Bosma. My passion and my role with external affairs is making sure that we 
let everybody in Indiana know that you're not alone. You can come to Bosma and you can find opportunity and you can find how to live your life independently. How do you do that? Do you try to work with caregivers, with eye doctors? Um, you know these, these positions better than I do. But to, but to bridge that, that gap that you had to the person who receives that diagnosis. All of the above. We, our programs team goes out and they talk to eye care professionals, starting with students who are entering the profession. We also do outreach to eye care professionals in the community. So that is one path for education. We also do a lot of community events. We go to senior fairs. We go to the state fair, just making sure that people know that there is life after vision loss. Again, want to make sure that there are no more leases. There's no reason for that because as we talked about it, those assistive technology opportunities really within computers bridge the gap between not being able to see and seeing. There's even a uh, app that we use here at Bosma called Blind Square, which is an indoor navigation system. So people who are blind can learn how to navigate within a space using their phone. So that technology piece is just so critical. And then that outreach piece, making sure people know not only are there services, training and employment, but there's also that training to learn how to use all of the, the assistive devices available. Okay, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ Podcast and our conversation with Lisa Pace of Bosma Enterprises. I want to back up for a second. So you started volunteering for Bosma in 2008. That's right. About right. That's right. In 2004, do I gather that you uh, went back to school, though? I mean, that was a pretty big step. I did. So uh, in my early 20s, we made a decision as a family. My husband and I were both in school and decided to go ahead and have him him finish his engineering degree. So I stopped. I did not get my bachelor's degree. But about four years before um, coming to Bosma, I did decide that I needed to complete my education. And that might be a step in regaining and reclaiming my career. And so where did you go and, and what did you study? Sure. So I started at uh, Indiana Wesleyan. I did their associate's degree, just tipping my toe in the water. Could I do it? And then uh, did really well in the program and got my bachelor's degree. I don't want to say got my, received my bachelor's degree. <laughs> I'm like, I don't think Indiana Wesleyan would be proud with it. <laughs> and then I ended up going back about two years after receiving my bachelor's degree and received my master's degree. Another really important piece of the story is I lost my father in 
2010. And one of the things, because he had seen me go from having a very vibrant career to experiencing vision loss and him not sure, being sure that his daughter was going to make it through. And then I was just starting to come back. And one of the things that he asked me to promise him is to continue my education and get my MBA. And he died in 2010 and I was able to, to do that. And that was an important piece beyond the skills and education that it brought to my job. It was making sure my dad was proud of me. And again, in 2008, how did, what were you first doing for Bosma? I started here as a volunteer and I would come in one day a week and I think the, then it was two days a week and then five days a week. And I truly believe that they felt bad after I was here five days a week. And I thought, well, we better pay her. So <laughs> we're going to guilt her. <laughs> we're going to guilt these guys. So that might, be, that, that, might, that might be, you know, it might be a strategy for someone looking for a job, start volunteering and then refuse to leave until I've they- I've employed that strategy before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and so after about a year, they offered me a position as a volunteer coordinator. So I took over their volunteer program, which was just kicking off. And uh, I've had 11 positions since I've been at Bosma <laughs> Enterprises, and I'm now on our executive leadership team. So it's really been quite a ride to go from volunteer to being part of the direction, strategy, and leadership of the organization. And again, I'm so passionate about it because I've lived what it looks like when you don't have training and employment. So you currently are vice president of external affairs. I am. What is that? What do you do? External affairs focuses obviously on things that are public facing. Primarily, I lead the teams that work on marketing, PR, and communications. I also lead the customer service team. And I also lead the team working on policy issues for people who are blind and issues relating to Bosma and its business um, training and employing people who are blind. Okay. Um, so the public policy program, again, championing, championing excuse me, issues important to the employment and training of people with disabilities. What are those issues? Funding for training is always an issue um, for rehabilitation programs. So we often are talking to policymakers and legislators about the need for that. By 2030, blindness will double. So people who are being diagnosed with blindness mainly due to age-related diseases, is supposed to increase. And so there's going to be a even heavier demand on resources than there are currently. So not only are we looking for additional funding now, but also into the future uh, to ensure that people can live independently after vision loss. We also are working to make sure that the world is accessible for people who are blind. So we are always advocating for universal design and that things like curb cuts and audio signals are available to keep people safe and independent. 
We also, at the federal level, work a lot on employment issues. We are a part of a program called the Ability One Program. It leverages the procurement of the federal government to create employment for people who are blind or have significant disabilities. And that program's changed a lot over the last several years. And so we are always advocating to ensure that the mission of that program is realized through employment. So we're doing a lot of work around that right now. I know you also have advocated for giving people with visual impairments an easier path to voting. Um, and obviously voting is, in particular, mail-in voting has been a hot topic for the last four years. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. When I started at Bosma as a volunteer and then into being the volunteer coordinator, one thing that was really apparent to me was that you have a population of people um, with disabilities that are not engaged in voting. And if you're not engaged in voting, you're not engaged in policy making. And so that was one thing I identified really quickly that I wanted to see if I couldn't impact some change. Here at Bosma, we had uh, several employees who had not been engaged in voting. So we pretty immediately started a voting program. So we have the traveling board in. It's a bipartisan board that allows people who are blind to be able to vote. And the first year that we did that, we had 13 people, adults, who had never voted, vote for the very first time. Over the last 12 years, we've seen that number increase. and. We don't tell people how to vote. We're not in, engaged in even really educating them about who they vote for. But what we are engaged in is giving them the opportunity to vote. And we think that's really important. Is that just here in the building, you mean? It is. Okay. It so is. What about the, the broader uh, society? I, I assume that there are several I mean, major impediments to just going to a voting place and voting. Um, and, and among other things, it's also a very visual kind of thing where you fill in bubbles and, or at least I do. What do you, what do you do to make that process easier for someone who's visually impaired? We have over the last several years engaged with the secretary of state and other advocacy groups to ensure that voting is more accessible and some policy has just been passed that allows for that more autonomous and independent voting so that people can mark their own ballot, so that they can submit their own ballot and that they can receive information that that ballot was received. So there were a lot of advocacy groups that worked on that issue. It's just recently been resolved. So that, that needle is moving. We're not to where we need to be ultimately with voting, where it's a completely independent seamless process, but we are moving the needle. And Bosma Enterprises, again, our mission is to create opportunities. So we focus on employment and training, but those social issues like voting that touch people who are blind, we're always trying to move that needle forward. Do you think that you would be able to leave Bosma and have a similar career in the for-profit sector? I do. I do. I um believe my education and skills are the equivalent or better than someone who has had my historical 
presence in the workforce or career. I think that I add a lot to this organization. I think that I could provide value to any organization that I work for. I may have to find different ways to approach my work than what maybe another company is used to with their traditional workforce. But I believe that I am able to do anything someone in my role at any company could do. Is was one of the big hurdles persuading the person doing the hiring at a conventional company that this is entirely possible and that you will be as productive as any other employee? As I understand it, Mason, you do some hiring of candidates yourself and it would really be the same way that you would evaluate any other candidate. Do they have the skills, experience, education that's transferable? People who are blind are, are no different. They have demonstrated skills. They have education. And, and we would never want, I would never want somebody to hire someone that wasn't a good fit for their organization or didn't have the skills to be successful just because they're trying to, to fill some, some opening with somebody who has a disability. What I want to do is get to a place where you're hiring somebody who has a disability because they're a good fit for your organization and that they'll be successful in that role. So uh, it, my position is somebody who might be hiring you or, or somebody else for a position. My brain is going to go, oh, do I have to make some kind of concessions here? Do we need to change the workspace somehow? And I guess that's a that's a case by case thing. But I mean, can you help allay my, my concerns that it's going to be burdensome somehow? It will not be burdensome. Of course, you, employers of a certain size have to follow the ADA. But I think you would find that most people who have a disability, those accommodations are reasonable accommodations, are a lot of times no cost. If you're going to employ somebody with a wheelchair, do you have to buy them a, a desk that's wheelchair accessible? Maybe you want to, maybe you're not able to. You could just place the desk on platform so that their wheelchair can roll under it, and that would be a reasonable accommodation. And it makes the person able to use their desk. So I think it's about being pragmatic towards the approach, but giving the tools to somebody who's blind or have another disability that makes them successful in their role. Oftentimes, those are, again, pragmatic sort of uh, accommodations that are helpful and, and not something that should be worrisome to an employer. And I think it's something that you can talk through with the employee and, and come to a reasonable uh, solution. I wanted to ask you real quick about, about your son. So he went to college. He did. Can you tell us where he went to college? <laughs> so Chris, my son, started his college career at USI in Evansville, and he finished up at IU, so with a degree in international business. But Chris actually really wanted to be in the military. He would come home from high school and he would 
tell us about how he had worked with a recruiter and he really wanted to join the army. And as a mother of an only child, I was really concerned about that. So continued to guide him towards college. When he was getting ready to graduate from high school, as I told you, we had sort of dissuaded him from going into the military, but I was not in a good place. I think I was frank about, and I think he had some concerns about going too far away from home. So he, so he did go ahead and go to IU, but Chris ultimately, after he graduated from college and I had worked for Bosma for a couple of years, he saw, he saw that mom was going to be fine. And he called me while I was actually out in DC working on advocating for some issues on behalf of Bosma. And he told me that he had met with a recruiter and that he was going to join the military. And he did that for six years. So the ripple effect of a place like Bosma is not only did it create independence for me, it allowed him to pursue his dream. So again, when people ask me what drives me to be passionate about my work, it's it's that impact that you can have on families. Well, I've taken a bunch of your time, but uh, thank you for telling your story today. I appreciate it, Mason. Thank you so much for coming into Bosma. And uh, we're a place that creates opportunity and Bosma.org would love to have people reach out if they need us. My thanks again to Lisa Pace. And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in this week's IBJ that I want to bring to your attention. First up, the race for the Republican nomination for Indianapolis mayor is widely expected to come down to two candidates, Abdul Hakim Shabazz and Jefferson Shreve. As Taylor Wooten reports, the big question is whether the straight-talking populism of political pundit Shabazz can overcome the deep pockets and measured approach of businessman Shreve. Also in this week's issue, Susan Orr details the state investigation against a financial advisor in several related Indianapolis-based businesses. Investors say they have not been able to collect returns that they're owed. And Dave Lindquist profiles... Chef Abby Maris, the co-owner of Fletcher Place's lauded Bluebeard restaurant and a six-time James Beard Foundation Award semifinalist. Again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. I will say that it's easier to access all of the latest local news about business and politics and all of IBJ's data on Central Indiana's business community and economy if you're a subscriber. And you may not know that we have wrapped all of IBJ's content together with all of the stories, columns, and podcasts from our sister publication, Inside Indiana Business, and now works out to about $3 per week for actionable information about every notable business development across the state. You won't find Indiana's story told with this kind of breadth and depth anywhere else. Just go to ibj.com and click on the subscribe button. And thanks again for making time this week for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.